I love that you love that song. And I, I, I have to say, just one time, when we sing it, just come down here and that part where the band drops out and you guys just sing, just listen. It'll, it'll give you goosebumps and change your life. I don't know about you guys, but I get overwhelmed sometimes thinking that the great I am called me into relationship with him. That the, the one before whom the mountains shake and demons run and hide not only wants to have a relationship with me, but he invites me into that work with him. That's, a, that's an incredible, incredible blessing and also an incredible responsibility. And we need the Lord's help to accomplish it. So will you pray with me this morning? Father, this morning's all about you, and rightfully so, about your power, your son Jesus, and the work he did on, on the cross according to your will, but on our behalf, and we're so grateful that we get to sing praises to the great I am, the one who bore our sin on the cross, and so we thank you. We ask you for your help this morning, changing us more and more into the likeness of your son Jesus give you praise for the work you accomplished today. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. You can have a seat. It's a privilege to be with you this morning. I'm Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at FBC, and it's already been a joy to worship with you, and it's a privilege to open God's Word with you. So if you have your, your Bibles or a device there, turn them to Colossians chapter 1, where we'll be spending most of our time today. And this week, we're, we're launching into a, a short mini-series called I, We. And the idea behind this whole, this whole series is, what is our identity in Jesus Christ? And so this week, we're going to be looking at, who am I in relationship to Jesus Christ? And then next week, we're going to look at, who are we? Because the, the cross not only transforms our personal identities, it also creates this brand new thing we call the church. And, and God has something to say about who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do. And so this week, we're going to focus on our identity, the question, who am I? And this comes right out of uh, Phil's previous two messages out of the book of Isaiah. And if you'll remember, if you guys were here or listened online, that when Isaiah has this vision of the throne room of God, and he comes face to face with the, the living God, with, with, with Jesus Christ. It changes absolutely everything about him. Everything. And he's completely undone. When I was in um, seventh grade, I was a super, super awkward teenager. Anybody else relate, relate to that? Okay. Okay. Um, I was really, really dorky. I still am, but uh, my voice was in the middle of cracking like three different times. So every time I opened my mouth, it was like, <laughs> you guys, rem guys remember that? And I remember standing at the bus stop after school, waiting for the bus to come, and uh, this beautiful girl walks up to me, I'd never met her before, and asks me, will you, will you buy some flowers from me, and I go, yeah, I, I don't have any money, and so she moved on her way, and I was undone. That young girl later became my wife, named Jessica. Uh, we did meet in seventh grade. I won't, um, students listening, it doesn't always happen that way, so don't be going home telling your parents, 
youth pastor said, it's okay for me to marry who I meet in seventh grade. Not, not the point of the story, but what happened, and, and some of you have similar stories. You, you meet a person and, and just like everything changes. All the plans I had for my life went out the window in seventh grade. I didn't have a lot, but <laughs> as amazing and awe-inspiring as my, my wife is, it's not even the same realm as Isaiah, uh, seeing Jesus in his glory. It changed everything for him. It changed his perspective of himself. It changed his perspective of the people he was around. It even changes his, his future plans. It just, it changed everything. And this is an important fundamental truth we have to understand that, and it's one we get wrong so often, and that's this. Our identity is firmly anchored in Jesus. That means that the work and person of Jesus alone defines you. It's one of the truths I think most of us would say we believe, right? If we're a believer in Jesus Christ, we would say, yes, the, the, the person and work of Jesus Christ absolutely defines who I am and what I do. But sometimes in practice, we, we preach a different message. And I think, and I, I, I'm not the only one with this opinion, that the American church is in the midst of an identity crisis. We don't really know who we are or who we're supposed to be. And we've begun to define ourselves by so many other things and measure our value based on faulty and insufficient standards. If some of you watched the news this week, you, you heard about a, a car crash with Tiger Woods, right? And uh, certainly hoping for a quick recovery for him. But as you listen to especially sports talk radio and the things going on there, they're talking about this man's legacy, and they're saying, well, will it be defined by what he's done on the golf course? Certainly one of the greatest golfers to ever, ever walk the face of the earth. Or will it be defined by all these things that have happened off the course, sometimes to him, sometimes be because of him? And they're talking about how Tiger Woods is going to be remembered. And sometimes as a church, we do the same thing. We're like, how is my life or how am I going to be remembered? What defines who I am? And we have all these standards that culture has set up for us. And so in order to address that, we have to turn our gaze back to Jesus because seeing who he is changes everything, right? And to help us to do this today, I want to look at this, the book of Colossians because the church, the Colossian church, the church at Colossae was very similar. It was founded in the first century and it had a similar identity crisis uh, because it was a church of both Jews and Gentiles. So if you think about that, uh, religious people and pagans, okay? Uh, they had all this Greek philosophy, false philosophy. They also had the Jews who were bringing in legalism and ceremonialism. And you can imagine for a group of first Christian believers, it was really confusing to figure out, okay, what am I supposed to do? Who am I supposed to be? How am I supposed to live? And out of these things came a bunch of confusing cultural issues. And the combating culture around them began to influence their thinking. And what happened was that they began to evaluate their spiritual maturity based on what they know, and then also how well they kept certain traditions and they stopped looking at Jesus to define who they were supposed to be. To them, Jesus alone became inadequate. 
They wanted or thought they needed Jesus plus knowledge, plus tradition, plus fill in the blank. We find ourselves in a, I think, in America in a very similar spot. Culture has impacted the way we value ourselves and our identity. Think about this. Men, how many men do you know that measure their worth by their level of employment? The amount of money they have in the checking account, the car they drive, the women they sleep with, the vacations they take with or without their families, the powerful connections that they have. Women, it can be very similar. How high can we climb the corporate ladder? How fit can I look? How put together my life looks on Instagram or Facebook? How many beautiful friends I have? How well behaved my children are? How clean my house appears to be? How stylish I look? Or whether or not I'm in a relationship or engaged or married. Now I understand that those aren't all gender specific. We all have standards that we rate ourselves by or judge our success level by. We even do this with good Christian things, right? How many times I read my Bible every week? How many Bible studies or small groups I'm involved in? How spiritual I appear on the outside to other people? How many times I go to church during a week? How much money I give to church? Maybe my Christian education. Even conservative culture has affected our perception of who we are. Which political party do I side with? What issues do I feel strongly about? How right or wrong I am really about anything. And so we have all these standards that we've, we've built around to kind of shape who we are. And when we ask the question like, so who are you? Tell me about yourself. All those things spill out, right? You begin to define yourself by all these standards that we've established. And not that any of those things is necessarily wrong. But when they begin to determine our view of of success, of value, we surely have taken our eyes off of Jesus, who's the one who's supposed to define us, who's supposed to give us our identity. And so what I want to do with our time today is shift our eyes back to Jesus, because our identity is firmly anchored in who he is and what he has done on the cross for us. He determines our identity and value, and he's really the only one that can So let's look together at Colossians 1, starting in in verse 15. Verse 15 says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation 
under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And this passage, it's, it's a familiar one to some of us, is one of the greatest word portraits ever painted of Jesus in the whole Bible. And when I was, I was studying it this week, I actually thought, what if, and this is just sanctified imagination, I can't prove this, but what if while Paul was writing this, he's actually reading about Isaiah and he's, he's picturing this, this incredible picture of what Jesus would look like filling up the temple and the, the angels singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of Almighty. And as he's thinking about that, he can't help but write this, this portrait of who Jesus is and, and what he's done and the authority he has on earth. And it's almost as if seeing the glory of the sun firsthand and he's, he's writing it down for us. And this is the first thing he shows us. He says, Jesus' authority orders our reality. Jesus' authority orders our reality. And if we look at the first five verses of this section, Jesus' resume begins to take shape. It says that he's the image of the invisible God. It means that he's the exact representation of God the Father. When, when Jesus was on earth, he told his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the exact representation of God the Father. It goes on to say he's the firstborn of all the creation, meaning he's first in rank. Not that he's created, but of all things that were created, he is higher and more elevated than everything that's ever been created. That includes everyone who has ever lived, everything that has ever been on this planet or any other planet for that instance. Jesus Christ ranks above them. Not only that, but everything was created by him and for him. Everything. There's not a single thing in this universe that wasn't created by Jesus and wasn't created to serve his purposes. That means he can do with it whatever he wants. Stop and think about that for a minute. Jesus created you. That means he has every right to define you and tell you how life is lived best. You're his. And so is everything else in this universe. And answering the question of who are you or who am I ultimately boils down to whose you are. If you belong to Jesus, you're his. It goes on to say, in him all things hold together. Not only did he create everything, but he sustains everything. He, he holds all things together. Every atom, every molecule, every element, every being is kept together by his power. And honestly, that's kind of frightening for me because that means that any minute, if he wanted to, he could stop thinking about me and I would cease to exist. That's the power that Jesus has. That's the authority that Jesus has to determine our reality. He's the head of the body of the church, and we're going to look at this next week, but Jesus gets to decide how his churches run and how it should operate and what we should be doing with our resources, our time, our energy, the word of God, etc. He's the head of the body. He's the firstborn from the dead. It means he's first in rank of all those who have ever been resurrected or will be resurrected. That means it includes you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and every believer who has ever lived will be resurrected one day to a new body, which is an amazing hope we have of heaven. But it's saying that Jesus is 
first in rank of all those people, meaning there's no one higher of believers, unbelievers ever. And he wraps it up, Paul says, that in everything he might be preeminent. And preeminent, the word means surpassing all others. And here's the point. Whatever power or prominence or authority we thought we had or that someone else or something else had or has, it all belongs to Jesus. All authority belongs to Jesus. Now, God has established different authority structures on earth. He's given us a family. He's, he's established governments. He's established the church. But Jesus Christ has authority in every arena of life, period. That means he gets to make the decisions about what your life looks like, what my life looks like, what the church looks like. And everything and everyone will either bow to him willingly in submission now or bow to him later as one who has been conquered. Philippians 2 says that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, the scary thing is some of us are, are so stubborn that it won't happen until he conquers us. But we have the, the choice now and we have the invitation now to submit to him and say, Jesus, you are the rightful ruler of my eternity. And all the other things that we choose to define ourselves by in this world, whether it's success or money or power or whatever, is at best, second best. And I'd like to suggest to you that the Bible tells us that the competition isn't even close. Jesus is preeminent. He surpasses all others. Yesterday, um, we had some friends in town and uh, our kids, two, two of our kids and two of their kids have hoverboards. You guys know what those are? Our youngest, Maddox, much to his dismay, is three years old, does not have a hoverboard. Because he can't ride one. It, it, it would be quite funny to watch. But they were all racing around in a circle. So they're, they're racing around going a million miles an hour. And they do it really weird. They do it, they're, they're on their knees racing around on these hoverboards. And it's incredible how fast they go. And Maddox... You, some, if you haven't seen Max, you guys can go to the three-year-old department and see that he's just an absolute tank, okay? He's not meant for speed, okay? He's running around after these kids on hoverboards, and he's like... And he, like, they're lapping him 10 times, 11 times, and he gets around the circle that they're running around. He gets to the end, he goes, I win, Daddy. I win. I go, did you? He goes, yeah, I win. And his, his victory is just as delusional as the control we think we have over our lives. <laughs> it is. Like, we, th we think we have some semblance of control over what's going to happen, and I understand that we can, we can pick our attitudes and we can choose to rejoice and things like that, but Jesus has ultimate and final authority in every arena of life. That means in your family, in your personal life, in your finances, in your relationships, in our church, Jesus defines who you are. And that's a really, really good thing because he loves you. He cares for you. Jesus is preeminent. He is greater than all. And as great as he is and high and lifted up as he is, he still chose to give himself for you and for me. 
Colossians 1.20 says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He died for you. I have to be honest. Um, I think the, the idea of self-esteem is a hot plate of garbage. You might disagree with me. But why would it matter what I think of myself when the king of the universe gave his life for me? The esteem of others, my, my own self-esteem will fade away and the deceptiveness of riches will fail, but the love and sacrifice of Jesus is eternal. It can define you forever, regardless of life circumstances. He has reconciled us, meaning he has ended the estrangement between us and God that is there because of our sin. And he did this by the blood of his cross. Jesus' authority needs to order our reality, and his cross needs to define our identity. You don't have to be defined by those other things. They hold no value because Jesus gave his life for you. That's who you are, redeemed, reconciled, adopted. His identity, or our identity, is anchored firmly in the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul goes on to talk about our identity in light of Jesus' authority, and he does so by drawing two conclusions for us. First, he says, Jesus' holiness reveals our fallen condition. Jesus' holiness reveals our fallen condition. And then right after that, secondly, he says, Jesus' work redeems our fallen condition. It redeems. So not only does his holiness reveal it, but his work redeems it. And I think it's important that we evaluate those two things together. All throughout scripture, we we are reminded both of our sinfulness and our new life in Jesus Christ. It's this, this weird tension, this weird balance that happens in scripture. As believers, we are both sinners and saints, Colossians 1.21, it says, it says, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Here, Paul first shows us that in light of Jesus' Jesus's perfection, we ought to remember our previously fallen condition. We're still sinners. Post-conversion, Paul himself calls himself the chief of sinners. In Romans chapter 7, he even calls himself a wretched man. This is after Paul's conversion, as he comes to grips with what Jesus has done and who Jesus is. Paul, or, or excuse me, Phil last week shared how the perfect holiness of Jesus caused Isaiah to think he was doomed. When we come face to face with the holiness of God, it reminds us that we are nothing. We're depraved. We're sinful. Doing evil deeds. And I'll be honest, some of you were upset last week by that, right? It's a hard, it's a hard pill to swallow thinking that we're sinful. 
We live in a society that does everything it can to pump us up and make us feel good about ourselves. But to be honest, the Bible paints a different picture for us. In fact, we're, we're dust. And we didn't, have even, we didn't even have life in us until God breathed life into us. We, we came from dust, and to dust we will return. We bring nothing to the table. And seeing Jesus as he is should absolutely humble us, just like it did for Isaiah. And the fact that we were previously alienated from God and he still chose us, even though we still choose to sin every day, doesn't have to define us, but it should ground us. Understanding our sinfulness leads us to repentance. It reminds us of our dependence upon God for his grace every single moment. It keeps us from being arrogant in our standing. It helps us minister to others who are caught in sin. It helps us understand and offer forgiveness. It keeps us from arrogantly thinking we cannot fall into sin. There's a pretty public investigation ongoing into the life of Ravi Zacharias right now. And if you guys don't know who Ravi Zacharias is, he is, he, he's now passed, but was one of the greatest apologists probably our world has, has ever seen, a, a great expositor. But after his death, it began, began to come out that he was involved in some heinous sexual misconduct and some evil, evil, debased things. I'll be honest, I don't know what Ravi's thought process was in all of that. I don't need to pretend to know. I don't, I, don't have to, I don't have to judge him. The Lord will do that. But I have to imagine and would be willing to bet that somewhere along the way, he began to think he had gotten too great that he couldn't fall anymore. And if we aren't reminded often of our sinfulness, the same can happen to us because the propensity for all kinds of evil lives inside of me and lives inside of you. And by the grace of Jesus, we can have victory over that sin, but we do well to remember where we came from. And that's why Paul, all the time, you read, you heard um, Brad read this morning from Ephesians 2, that we were dead in our trespasses and sin, but God made us alive. And you have to understand that there's a reason that when Paul is writing to believers, he, remember, he reminds them of their former condition and says, you still have part of this lurking inside of you, so be watchful so that it keeps you from doing the things you desire and keeps you on the straight and narrow. It keeps you from being arrogant about your standing. God's grace alone can lead to victory. And it's good and necessary for us to be reminded of our sinfulness so that none of us may boast before the cross. Jonathan Edwards says, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. That's where we're all at. It should humble us and cause us to be grateful because we, we praise God that he did not leave us in sin. Amen? He didn't leave us there. We, if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we're also saints. He calls us saints so Jesus' work redeems our fallen condition at me, and redeems means to pay the price required for something. And in this case, Jesus paid the price due our sin. The wages of sin is death. 
And Jesus paid that price. He took our sin on himself and became sin for us. And we can be called saints because in this this exchange for our sin, when we place our faith in Jesus, we receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that when God looks at us, he no longer sees our sin. He sees the perfect holiness of his son who took our place. And that is really good news. In Colossians 1, again, 22, he says, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. There's this weird balance that goes on here because while understanding our sinfulness keeps us from being arrogant, understanding our righteous standing before Christ keeps us from living in defeat. We're, we're not where we should be. But by God's grace, we're not where we used to be. We are redeemed and reconciled by the blood of Jesus Christ. And both of them are important. Both of them are a part of understanding our identity. We no longer have to bear the weight of our sin. Nor does it need to hold power over us. But we do well to remember that the pull of sin can still affect us. You and I are sinners, once alienated from God, but by his grace and by the blood of his son on the cross, we've been brought close to God, been close. We are new creations. We've been given new life. We are redeemed. And some like to argue that we're saved sinners, or some like to argue that we are saints that still sin. Scripture shows us both that awkward tension, that awkward balance, so that we do not become too arrogant and that we do not live in defeat. We're both saints and sinners. Jesus' death defeated the power of sin for us and paid the penalty of sin for us. And one day when he returns, I can't wait for this day. I imagine that this day is gonna be a lot like singing with you this morning. One day he will return and the presence of sin will be eradicated from this world and that will be a glorious day. And I believe that there's gonna be a band, probably just like ours, (laughs) that's gonna play the great I am and for the first time you're going to understand fully your identity in Christ. And the presence of sin is gonna be gone forever and ever and you're going to sing your lungs out. So here's, practice now so it's not awkward when we get there, right? Some of you haven't sung in years, and you're like, you expect to get to heaven and be like, oh, this is what we're doing. I look forward to that day. We, where sin is no more, but for now, we need to keep guard over our hearts. And until then, we have work to do. Paul reveals this at the end of his paragraph. He says, Colossians 22, 23, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. And what Paul is saying here is that our works attest to Jesus's work. Our works attest to Jesus's work in us. We are saved by grace through faith alone. But faith that doesn't produce good works is not real faith. 
James calls it dead faith. Paul here is specifically speaking about perseverance. It is one of the marks of true faith. Our response to difficulty is a window into our identity. If our identity is in things or people or power or prestige or money, then when those things fail, our life crumbles. But if our identity is firmly rooted and anchored in who Jesus is and what he's done on the cross, then when those stressful times come or those trials come or those tragedies come, we, he remains steadfast. So we remain steadfast. And our hope in him is unwavering. But one of the sobering realities of scripture is that not everyone who claims to be a follower of Christ actually is one. That's a, that's a scary thing for a pastor to say, for a youth pastor especially. But Matthew 7 is really clear. Matthew 7, 21 says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Over and over again, the authors of scripture point us to the fact that those who have real saving faith will persevere. You don't have to attend church very long to understand that there are real believers and pretenders in every crowd. Believers who understand their sin in the light of what Jesus has done and, and his finished work on the cross and pretenders who, who want everyone to think that they have some sort of spiritual maturity and, and hope to God that no one finds out the truth. Because in reality, they have no desire to serve Jesus with their life. The Bible tells us that time will tell. In speaking of pretenders, John had this to say in his letter. He said, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain or become plain that they are not of us. And this all begs a really, really important question this morning. Who are you? If you've placed your faith in Jesus as Lord, then your identity is firmly anchored in him and his work on the cross. It's secure. But maybe you, like the Colossians, have allowed culture to define you and to give you the standards that you're supposed to define yourself with. You've taken your eyes off Jesus and pursued other things instead. I know I'm guilty of this. I know I'm guilty of the comparison game, right? where we're looking around at everything anybody else has, and we're like, well, I'm not as successful as them, or I'm more successful than this person, or I have more than this person, or I look better than this person, or I look worse than this person. This person seems to have it all together. And we, we make value judgments and identity judgments based on that. But Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And nothing under heaven or on earth can compare to him. 
If you find yourself there as a believer in Jesus Christ, return and repent to him today. Set your eyes back on Jesus because all those other things are at best, second best. They they can't hold a candle to Jesus. Don't define yourself by them. Your identity as a believer in Jesus Christ is firmly anchored in what Jesus has done and who he is. Don't be deceived. All that other stuff the Bible tells us one day is just gonna burn away. And your identity with it, if it's set on those things. But Jesus, the eternal son of glory, the great I am, will be here till the end of time and beyond. He's your source of identity. Some of you here are pretending. And some of you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And scripture tells us about your current identity as well. You're alienated from God and you're dead in your sins. And I know that's not a very politically correct message, but I I don't care. That's what the Bible says. Apart from Christ, we are dead in our sins. But there's really, really good news. You can have new life today. Your identity can be secure, firmly anchored in Jesus Christ today. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This morning, I I, want to give you that opportunity to respond. So as we close this morning, if you feel God stirring in your heart that either you've been pretending this whole time to be a believer or you've never even heard the name of Jesus, you've never confessed your love for him or confessed him as Lord, I want you to respond. You don't have to make a, you don't have to stand up and shout from the rooftops, although that would be appropriate. But if you need help doing that, as we close today and as everybody else is leaving, come down here. I'll be sitting up front. Grab my hand. I would love to show you, or one of our prayer team members would love to show you how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ today. Your sin, your past, the, cult, the, the world's cultural definition of identity no longer have to define you. You can be defined by life in Jesus Christ and begin your new life today. Pray with me. Father God, we're grateful for your grace. We're grateful for your mercy. We're grateful for the work that you've done in us. And God, I just wanna ask you to forgive me for the times where I've taken what I've seen in our world and our culture and let it define me instead of your son, Jesus Christ. I am redeemed. I am reconciled. I am an adopted son of God. Help me never to forget it. And those believers here today struggling with the same thing, following the way of the world and, and being defined by who they are as by the, cult, the way the culture defines it. God, would you help them see the beauty of our life that we have in Christ? Not only are we're, we're not defined by sin anymore, but we can actually be saints. If there's anyone here today who does not know you, Lord, I pray that you convict them of their need for a savior, that they would understand the new life that comes from being in Jesus Christ and the satisfaction, the fulfillment, and the new identity we have because your son Jesus gave everything for us. We can give everything for him. Be with my brothers and sisters as they go today. Pray us in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys, you are dismissed.
Thank you for joining our worship service online today. Our prayer is that the worship and the teaching has left an impression on your heart and that God will use it to inspire you to love God, love people, and penetrate our world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you made a spiritual decision today, or if you need prayer, you can let us know by clicking the link to our online connection card. And then if you haven't yet taken advantage of it, you can download our church app where we have all of our announcements and opportunities, and you can also use it to share this week's message with a friend. And then you can also check out our website, fbclcart.org, to stay connected with us that way as well. God bless. Have a great week, and we'll see you here again next week.